This is episode eight of Old Ben Yells, and I'm Bob Burnett from Barefoot Mining. I want to talk today about orcs and ossification and go through a little bit of history from my personal computer days. This topic is something that's kind of been rambling around in my head for a handful of weeks. It started from a tweet. I've been a tweet that really talked about maybe the need for ossifying or solidifying kind of the all the Bitcoin code. And emotionally, I'm very in favor of that. I feel like when we talk with newbies, when we're looking at adopting new people, the easiest answer when we get asked, hey, can Bitcoin change is no, it can't. Because it, it ends up being kind of a funky discussion about how Bitcoin changes and the manner in which it changes and who controls the change. And it's a lot easier, frankly, to just say, no, it can't change. And, I, and that becomes very reassuring to newbies, whether those newbies are individuals or family offices or institutions. And I talk to all of those sort of groups. And so there's a part of me that when this tweet came out, I responded to the effect, I don't remember my exact words, but to the effect of, yes, I would, I would like to see ossification. Stefan Levera, who's a, who's a, a gentleman and uh, somebody I respect a lot that I've gotten to know some, kind of called me out on that at that point and said, no, it's, it's not time yet. We still have work to do, things that have to happen at uh, to support level two and beyond. And we'll get into that some more. But the truth of the matter is Stefan was right. I was wrong. And I was premature in my uh, response to that. And so thank you, Stefan, for, for calling me out on that. I think that that's, by the way, one of the things that I think has to happen more in the community is it's okay to, to disagree with somebody. It's okay to change your mind. Uh, it's okay to admit you were wrong. I'm doing that in this case. Stefan was right. I was wrong. And, and I think that's the way that people behave in the real world. We, we do have, in my opinion, just too much toxicity. People get canceled too quickly when there's a disagreement. And so anyway, I'd like to see you know more of that. But anyway, I, uh, I think that for those of you who are who are newer to Bitcoin, there are a fork refers to basically a change. You know, it's a change. That's really what it means. And so we're going a new direction. And a soft fork essentially refers to a, a, a change that doesn't modify any of the rules. So in in the Bitcoin world, we would basically say, well, if if an old node could still operate on the network, then it's a soft fork. Uh, if you know an older block gets seen by um, a newer node, that it can still read it. Well, a, a hard fork means that everybody must change. It's like an operating system upgrade that you must take. I'm sure you've all had those sort of situations with your phone or your or maybe your computer at some point in the past. Well, 
um, ossification basically means we're not going to change anymore at all. Okay, so it would be no more forks. So really, we have you know, soft forks, minor changes, everything still works fine. Uh, not mandatory, hard forks, mandatory, everybody must change. Uh, or And if you don't change, then essentially the world has split in two. And ossification means no more changes. So forks, though, aren't, aren't unique to Bitcoin. Uh, they occur all across technology. And those of you that know me a little know I came from the personal computer world. And I'll tell you a little history. And I've, I've really kind of wanted to, to talk about this just to document it because it's a piece of history that I think has kind of faded into the, um, oh, I don't know what, faded into the ether. People don't remember this anymore. And there aren't as many of us alive and around that still remember to tell this story. So I'm going to tell you a story about forks in the personal computer industry that I think are very pertinent for us in the Bitcoin world. So the IBM PC was announced in 1981. It was a, really the first computer with an open architecture that was broadly adapted. Apple folks, don't get mad at me, but it was always a closed architecture. People started making what were called clones of those to some success in the early 80s. In 83, there was another computer called the IBM XT. But then in 1984, IBM created a product called the IBM AT. And that machine really became the cornerstone of the personal computer as we know it today. It was um, a 286 processor. It had a 16-bit OIO bus. It was based on a, on a um, 8286 Intel processor. And... The architecture, as I said, was, was open. It was primarily built around standard components and some reverse engineering was required to build a compatible product. There wasn't, IBM didn't publish all of the specs, but it wasn't too difficult for somebody skilled in the art to figure it out. So that launched a boom of clone products company I worked for in that era called Zenith was one of those companies, Compaq, those of you down in the Houston area would remember them, but there were several others, Tandy, which was a division of Radio Shack, or actually Radio Shack was the division of Tandy, had theirs, there were several others in that era, and we all built these computers, and of course they were cheaper and faster than IBM's. and But IBM was still by far the king of the world in, in the personal computer space. But they did start seeing their market share get eroded a little bit and margin pressure was coming in. So what they decided to do in 1987 was hard fork. They said, hey, we're going to abandon the IBM AT architecture, and we're going to go to something new called microchannel. Microchannel basically blew up the key pieces of the IBM AT architecture, hardware-wise especially, and created this new one. Now, I was working at Zenith at the time, and uh, 
I remember, but I was young. I was 23 years old, young engineer. And my job was very important to me. I remember when the announcement came out, being you know, young and inexperienced and starting to read through kind of the technical details of this thing. And the truth of the matter was, as an engineer, I started looking at it and saying, wow, it, it's really cool. It's really good. It's, it's faster. It's going to be more reliable. It's more expandable. There's all these really cool features of it. Um, it, it, it brought in new graphics standards. There was all these things that really made it cool. By the way, it still would run all the old software, but hardware-wise, it blew up the architecture completely. Uh, and at the same time, though, IBM had partnered with Microsoft on a new pro a software product called OS2, which was going to be the graphical user interface, multi-application, uh, multitasking applications, um, all these sorts of things that us at that time, we were living in a world with DOS-based applications, Windows hadn't really taken hold. And I guess to make a, a long story short, the, the announcement was really intimidating. And I remember being scared for my job, thinking, oh, IBM's coming in. They're going to they're gonna just dominate this whole thing. And what IBM did, I think mainly because of antitrust laws, was said, well, we will license this technology to anybody that wants it. But typically they were asking for about 5% of revenues, which is just an ungodly amount of money and would have made it really impossible for anybody to exist. Well, interestingly, uh, Dell, uh, which was a small company at the time, was really the first major brand to bend the knee to IBM. So uh, for any of you Dell heads out there, um, your, your, at least your early days were, were not very, uh, let's say, rebellious in that, that uh, you, you, you bent, your company bent the knee right away. But kind of behind the scenes, as we, we started regrouping, those of us from other companies, um, my company Zenith was one of the biggest. As I said, you know, we had IBM, we had HP, we had NEC, we had those sort of computers. We did something that was certainly very unexpected for IBM. So we got together and we created something called the Gang of Nine. It was nine companies, the nine of the bigger personal computer companies in the world. And we decided to create a new standard that built upon the base of the IBM AT um, and just extended it. So in other words, it was compatible. So we were going for a soft fork. We didn't call it that, that, that at the time, but it was a soft fork of the PC architecture. And so these nine companies got together to create this new standard, which we did. It was called ESA. EISA, Extended Industry Standard Architecture. And it was um, powerful. It wasn't exactly the same. Um, it didn't have all of the features 
of microchannel, but it had most of them. Uh, it, it, it was maybe arguably technically superior in a couple ways, but I think at the end of the day, anybody being honest about it would say, no, it's probably technically inferior, but it had one key advantage, which was it was backward compatible. It was, it was a soft fork. And we, it did not force anybody to throw any hardware away or software away that they, they had from the past. And I was fortunate enough, by the way, even though I was a young engineer, um, I was able to work on uh, one of the committees that helped develop ESA. Um, there were several others from my company, um, some more senior, certainly at that time that did more to make it happen, but I was proud to be part of that. And in the end, uh, ESA was uh, successful in that it created a bridge. It pushed back microchannel by giving, especially corporate buyers, an option to not abandon everything. Now, IBM was obviously making this play because th they wanted to remain the king of the hill. And they thought the way to remain the king was to build a wall that was really impenetrable by anybody else. And, you know, it was funny because obviously the reason this thing took off in the first place was because they created an open architecture. So um, just a little piece of, of history as well. So I ended up not only working on the committee, but we had to develop products around ESA. I worked with a, a really bright engineer. His name was Saeed Zanganapur. If Saeed's out there somewhere, uh, God bless you, Saeed. I hope you're doing well. Uh, he and I worked together on a, a disk controller using the ESA bus. It was the world's first RAID cache controller for any of you geeks out there, which meant it supported multiple disks running simultaneously in unison with a cache. That product got featured on the cover of Byte magazine in 1990. Um, and uh, by the way, I, I think I forgot to mention that, that the microchannel announcement was in 1987, if I, if I forgot to mention that. Um, in 1987, that came out, and um, ESA responded shortly after that, the announcement of the Gang of Nine, but it took a while to develop all the technology, and in 1990, the product I was working on, this disk controller, was featured on the cover of Byte magazine, and it was really, a, it was an important milestone, a little piece of history, I believe, played a significant role in squishing microchannel, because it it validated technically this new technology. And I'll put a link, by the way, on, at least on Twitter and YouTube where we post this um, for anybody that wants to see that article from uh, 1990. But, you know, in the, in the end, um, ESA was victorious less because of how much product it sold, but more because it squished IBM. And it, it showed that hard forks are, are difficult, that moving everybody to a new standard 
is 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 not a, a simple process. And ironically, it's usually a life or death decision, and that, and that's what it ended up being for IBM in in 1987 when they announced microchannel. They were already the king of the hill. They were by far number one in market share. Uh, I believe still over 50% of the worldwide personal computer market. By 1994, they had lost the top spot. The PC industry continued to innovate on open standards um, and you know, maintained its compatibility with the IBM AT. Uh, most, if you're watching this on a, a, a Windows-based personal computer right now, majority of those guts are still there uh, now approaching you know, 40 years later. Um, interestingly, by 1996, IBM bent the knee back to ESA, and they started developing servers based on the ESA standard. The personal computer market kind of continued to, to, to fork in a, in a largely compatible way. Um, we now have the PCI, whole series of PCI standards that really provide the foundation for the personal computer market, but, but all in essence still with the AT there at its core. By 2004, by the way, IBM gave up the personal computer business. So they went in a 20 year period from being the creators of the standard itself to losing number one market share, to bowing to uh, the competitive force to bowing out of the business completely. Um, so, it, you know, it's quite a tale, I think, of, of mismanagement and miscalculation of risk and not understanding network effects and not understanding really the power of open architectures. So, I think when we uh, when we look back at kind of this whole thing and then kind of kind of bring it back to Bitcoin a, a little bit, you know, imagine first of all what that hard fork cost IBM. They hard forked right in front of the personal computer moving into every home and every schoolroom across the country. Um, the whole boom that really came from Windows 95 and then of course the internet. So they, they, they hard forked right in front of the greatest period of prosperity in computing um, and missed the whole thing. Who knows what history would have been like, uh, whether they would have maintained the number one share or not, it's hard to say, but they would have, they would have been big. They would have been massive, um, but they completely screwed it up. Now we've seen hard forks in our world, in the Bitcoin world, the Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, both tried to hard fork Bitcoin and found they really don't have that many followers. They're they're on fumes, as far as I can tell, especially Bitcoin SV and many other derivatives of Bitcoin, Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin whatever, um, they've, all, they've all failed as well. So if we go back to ossification though a little bit though, 
the personal computer industry had really this IBM AT architecture that ossified. And, and it continued to evolve for several years. I'd say that the evolution is largely been minor for the last 15 to 20 years, very, very minor, but it, but it still exists. Um, but it's, it's largely ossified. And so I, I, I was thinking a lot about ossification and Bitcoin, and I was thinking about people too. So those of you who have kids probably know that, that kids have growth plates. And so as they're growing, essentially room for those bones to grow, and then they eventually kind of fuse together. And, and uh, that's really an ossification process. Well, in Bitcoin, I think being almost 15 years old, we've kind of ossified in certain areas. We've ossified, I believe, in things like the difficulty adjustment, the block size, 10-minute blocks, the block subsidy, um, and of course, uh, the 21 million Bitcoin as the max supply. But on some extremities, certain areas of our growth, uh, it probably isn't time to ossify. I would like that to happen. Um, I still think there's a great benefit to it, but it's clear we're not ready. And there's still some growing to do. We have to have room for that growth to go. Interesting, I, I did, just did a few few searches and, and uh, on growth plates before I, I, I got on here to talk. And for the human body, most people between the ages of 15 and 20 is when those growth plates ossify. They all stop growing somewhere in that time range. Some people bleed into their early 20s. But I think, I think it sets not a hard timetable, but maybe a nice kind of goal or, 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 or metric for us to use to kind of think about where we might want to be as, a, as an industry. And I think this next five-year period is really the critical one where this last stage of growth needs to occur or should occur. And that maybe the focus should be on primarily enabling layer two. Let's make sure that the base layer is doing everything it needs to do so that there is a robust layer two and secure. Once we achieve that, then I would say outside of maybe special circumstances where somebody identifies something like a security threat, then I think we should consider Bitcoin to be largely ossified. Now, all of that said, I always view Bitcoin as something that we're building for a thousand years. That we want Bitcoin to be money for the next thousand years, which is obviously a very, very long time. And if we think about a thousand year period, there'll be plenty of factions and opinions and powerful people and powerful organizations that emerge over time that I think will likely want 
for not the right reasons, but they will want to create changes in Bitcoin. And I believe they'll fail. For some other reasons, we'll get into another day. I believe that the one that they will attack on next will be block frequency. And I think there'll be an attempt to move off of 10-minute block times to something faster. But what we have to remember is that even now, Bitcoin's processing well over $10 trillion a year through its network. As we move to hundreds of trillions and then quadrillions of value, dollars of value being processed through the network, there's going to be a lot more people involved. There are going to be people involved that have no sense of history. They weren't, they, they don't know about the block size wars in 2017. They won't have read the works of Satoshi. They, they won't have been part of the struggle that I think all of us are going through right now to try to, to try to help the world understand and, and adopt. These people are going to come often from a very fiat mindset. They're going to be used to being powerful. They're going to be used to being wealthy. They're going to look for ways to exploit what power and influence they have to make themselves even more powerful and more wealthy. And if Bitcoin is a place where wealth is held and value is processed, well, they're going to look at this network as the place to try to do that expect them to try to come in and and create forks. I'm 59 years old. I think I have a lot of years left. Everybody here um, probably is an adult at one level. Some of you may be in your 20s. Some of you may be in your 70s. But with a thousand years of Bitcoin ahead, at some point, we're not going to be here. We're not going to be the voice. It'll be the voice of our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids that have to pick up the mantle of what Bitcoin is, why it is what it is. As I was reflecting on this, I thought a lot about the framers of the U.S. Constitution and thinking, well, as they were framing this, U.S. Constitution on the heels of the U.S. Revolutionary War, everything was fresh in their mind, right? The, the war and the struggle were real. The reasons behind all the words, every word in the Constitution have been something that they had, I'm sure, agonized over and debated. And I'm, I'm sure it was fascinating to be in the room at, or for different rooms as, as these things were being debated. But I'm sure they also worried about 30 years later, 50 years later, 100 years later, or no, 250 years later, would the people living under that constitution understand the reasons for the key elements of the constitution and would they fight to preserve them or not? And I think we now, as we go forward, we have that same important mission that we have to educate the subsequent generations 
to the reasons why we believe in the block size where it is. We believe in the 21 million supply. We believe in all these core elements and make sure that as the, the attempts to fork in the future come forward, that they are preserved, that the essence of all those things are preserved. I hope there ever, never is a hard fork. If there is a hard fork, I pray it has nothing to do with any of the core elements, that it's, it's maybe because of some technical vulnerability that emerges that has to be solved. And, and maybe you know, that's really the only reason I hope it ever occurs. But I think it, it's a lesson to us that, that if Bitcoin's going to win, it has to win over a long period of time. And, and our mission as Bitcoin ossifies moves from fighting for the right ossification to fighting to educate those that will follow us so that they know why we're doing what we're doing and create the same fire for them to fight against anybody trying to change it. Thanks for listening.